The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if I could narrow down uh, the focus of 1 Peter to three things for us this morning uh, that Peter has been trying to teach his readers, I'm gonna, I would say this. One, he's trying to teach them When you're born again, you get a new identity in Christ. So he's trying to teach them who they are in Christ. As they become a family of God, it's going to change and empower their lives in certain ways. And so he's talking about their identities, who we are in our core when we become Christians. But then secondly, he's giving them, and here's the kind of terminology we're going to use. He's giving them or trying to create for them a theology of suffering. Now, what is that? A theology of suffering is telling them, he basically showing them how, what God thinks of suffering, showing them how that their life is going to be shaped by suffering, that suffering is coming to them, to prepare them to suffer unjustly because the society around them does not understand them, um, doesn't like aspects of their newfound faith in Jesus, okay? So here's, the two, here's two things that are going on, guys. One, this is who you are in Christ, okay? This new identity outside of anything you could ever do, anything you could ever achieve, any socioeconomic background that you had, any neighborhood you grew up in, any culture you grew up in. The, your identity in Christ supersedes all of those things. And then at the same time, he's building out for them this theology of suffering, okay? And, and, then, and then the third topic is basically how those two things coalesce. Right? Peter's teaching them that your identity in Christ and your theology of suffering, that these things should come together and align that who they are in Christ informs the way they respond to suffering in such a way, here it is, that it causes other people outside of the Christian church to ask questions and eventually, hopefully, to come to faith in Jesus. So it's the way Christians respond to suffering that bring other people to Christ. 
And we see all three of these realities in our text this morning. But here's the problem, right? Who cares? Right? That, that's probably what we want to say this morning. Who cares? Why should we care about what Peter has to say about suffering? Well, Peter's going to give us several reasons this morning, but let me just give you one to kind of whet your appetite. Not too positive an outlook, but it's reality, okay? Here it is. Suffering is coming. Right now. Suffering is coming for you. Suffering is inevitable in this life. We all have to go through enough to kill us. But the reality is, suffering can either ruin your life or it can make your life sweeter. It can burn up your life and leave it in a pile of ashes or it can refine your life and make it more brilliant like a piece of gold in the refiner's fire. And the result of suffering is largely dependent upon how you prepare for it. If you don't prepare your heart and mind, when suffering comes, it will likely crush you. When a person is unprepared for suffering, and this is kind of the bad side of my job as a pastor, that I walk into most rooms where other people walk out of. I walk into hospital rooms. I walk into you know funerals. I walk into these places. And I have seen over the last 15 years that when people are unprepared for suffering, it can cause them to lose faith. It can cause them to lose hope. And, in, and both of those things lead to a great despair, a great depression, a great ruining of their soul. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, this is, it says this, the author says this, God says that he made Jesus perfect through suffering. And then in Hebrews 5, 8, it says of Jesus, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation of all who obey him. Now, what those two texts reveal is first, suffering is obviously inevitable since Jesus was perfect. He never sinned, right? He never did anything to deserve suffering, and yet suffering came anyways, and Scripture tells us it was God's will for him to suffer. So it was God's will for Jesus to suffer. And secondly, we see from these texts that Jesus was made perfect. He was made our perfect substitute, our perfect Savior through his suffering. Now, what does that mean? He was always morally perfect, but his suffering was, I'm going to quote Sam Storms, Acts 29, pastor and theologian. His suffering, quote, was a process by which Jesus was shown to be fully equipped and qualified for his office. So he was always morally perfect, but through his suffering, he became the perfect savior. He was the suffering servant, the perfect one. And what Peter is trying to tell us is that if God made Jesus perfect through suffering, he also wants to make us perfect through suffering. God wants to use the inevitable suffering that's coming into our life, listen, to bless you. In fact, that's the exact thing. Thing Peter says here in chapters not or in verse 9 and verse 14, he's saying, if you can 
receive this suffering in such a way, respond to it in blessing, that God himself will bless you. But if we're going to learn how to receive that blessing, the blessing that only comes through suffering, we've got to pay attention to what Peter's trying to tell us this morning. Now listen, uh, I grew up wrestling. I wrestled in high high school, wrestled in college. And you kind of came to expect this thing. It was kind of torture. Wrestling is one of the hardest sports on the planet. Your body is in full exertion for basically six minutes or so. Uh, you're, it's you against one other person, same size, you know, same weight class, and you just go head to head. And one of the things in wrestling practice that every coach does is you have to find a partner. You're going to wrestle a six-minute match, and you wrestle a guy, and you're exhausted. And inevitably, at the end of this match, right, he's going to the coach blows his whistle and he says, "Overtime!" And everybody knows it, and everybody hates it. And what he's trying to do, so you, you're, you, you basically expend all your energy in that, or what you think is all your energy in that six minutes. You've been suffering. You're ready for the match to be over. You're ready for a water break. You're ready for rest. And God says, or God says, and your coach says, same thing, similar <laughs> at that time, right? Uh, your coach says overtime. And what he's trying to do is prepare your body mentally and physically for the suffering that's going to come in this overtime. Overtime, usually first person who scores wins. And so you've got to suck it up and you've got to push through and you, you think you're tired, but you, you still got some gas in the tank. And what he's trying to do is prepare you mentally and physically for the suffering that's on its way. And Peter is trying to do that for us this morning. And I'm trying to do that for us this morning. I, I want to say, you know, over time here, like let's prepare ourselves for the suffering that's coming so we can respond to it when we're in the, in the match. And we actually go into overtime and something unexpected happens to us. We have the mental resources, the emotional resources, the spiritual resources to handle it. And we don't lose our mind and lose our faith. See, many of us, we've never heard that it could be God's will for us to go through suffering. That it could be God's will for us to lose our job, to get mocked or made fun of, to be cut from the team or ostracized from the team to be abandoned by those close to us, to be mocked by a professor, all because of our faith in Jesus. Many of us have never even thought about that. And if we don't have a good, proper, biblical theology of suffering, if we don't understand what the Bible teaches about the inevitability of suffering, we'll be devastated by it when it enters our life. And the sad thing, the sad kind of state of affairs in our culture is that many churches never talk about suffering. And they don't talk about suffering, probably mainly because they don't preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and this type of message doesn't draw a crowd, right? We don't think about what's going to draw people in and really get people excited. Let's do a series on suffering, God's will in suffering, right? Let's tell them how... Nah, I'm not going to go there, right? Now why? Well, church in the 21st century has become basically this loose collection of individuals who want God to help them meet their goals, accomplish their dreams, and solve their problems without requiring anything from them. 
In 2005, uh, a sociologist, his name was Christian Smith, he conducted a massive survey of American uh, 13 to 17-year-olds about their religion. <clears throat> and he concluded that their views, uh, the American teenagers, their religious views were not best characterized by Christianity, though many of them espoused Christianity. What they actually believed, he summarized by the label moralistic, therapeutic deism, or MTD. MTD. And this is how Smith summarizes the creed of moralistic therapeutic deism. One, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. So most American teenagers believe that there is a God out there, that God created everything. He kind of watches over everything. Okay, that's kind of the deistic, that's, be, that's deism, believing there's a God out there. Not really general, or it's very general, not really specific. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So just kind of general, be nice, be good. That's what God wants. Uh, three, that's the kind of the, the moralistic piece. So number two is kind of like the moral, moralistic. God just wants people to be good and nice and, and such. Uh, number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. This is, very, this is driven by our individualism, okay? That's the goal of life. And four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to solve a problem. So that's the therapeutic nature. Most, uh, most young people in the survey in America believed that basically God is a big therapist in the sky. You don't go to a therapist if you're, if you're feeling great. You go when you're feeling upset. So you don't really need God in your life. You don't really need to think about him. You don't really need to do these unless you have a problem, right? We, we know this. This is high school religion before every test, right? That's when you pray, right? You pray before your tests. And you're, you're hoping that just because your book was in the bag in your room that somehow by osmosis, you'll know the answers to the test. A supernatural process will take place and you'll pass your test, right? Without studying. And that doesn't happen, right? So it's therapeutic in nature. And lastly, the fifth belief of moralistic therapeutic deism, of course, is good people go to heaven when they die. Now, in other words, this false religion says this, God exists, but only to make us happy and nice, which is the aim of existence. That's our purpose for being around. Otherwise, God just minds his own business. And in this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic faith, suffering at its best is an anomaly that cannot be explained. I don't know why it happens. It just happens. Let's not talk about it. Or at its worst, it's proof that God is upset with you, that you've maybe been immoral, that God is judging you some way, that he's punishing you and you've done something wrong. And this is why so many people in our country, they think they're Christians. They say they're Christians, but they aren't Christian. They're moralistic, therapeutic deists. And you see this when suffering comes into their life, right? Suffering comes into their life and they're crushed by it. They don't have the resources to stand up under the pressure because MTB, MTD does not give you the resources to obtain a blessing that comes through suffering. So 
I want us to look at our text this morning because in it, I think Peter does. Peter shows us, here's what it is. He shows us how to take in suffering, respond in blessing, and receive a blessing in return from God. This is the gospel alchemy that turns suffering into blessing and makes believers shine like Jesus to a watching world. Let's get into our text this morning. Chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. We've got Bibles in the rows if you don't have one. Uh, open up your app, whatever. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you. Okay, so remember, Peter was addressing specific people in the church. Right? He's, he's telling them to submit to the government. Then he's telling them, submit to your employer. And then last week he's telling, uh, he's speaking to the wife and speaking to the husband and, and their relationship. And now he's saying, all of you. So listen, this is what Peter's doing. Peter is speaking to the whole church, right? Peter's writing to the church and he's speaking to the whole church. And this is what he says. All of you, that's all of us too, have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is interesting, right? Peter's talking about suffering. He's been talking about suffering. And now he addresses the whole church. He's speaking to the whole church. Now listen, in in the year 2000, um, Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone. It's a pretty famous book. And we noted that our society is becoming increasingly private and personal, and they've left behind many of the old ways of living in a community. He says that we've become more and more self-absorbed with our own needs and our own desires. And to prove his point, he brings up some statistics. He he points to, we've had a 25% decline in voting in the past 30 years. We've had a 50% decline in social, civic, and fraternal organizations. 50%. We've had a 10% decline in church attendance, but listen, a 50% decline in church activities outside of the Sunday service. So 20, 30 years ago, uh, a nominal churchgoer, just a normal churchgoer, went to church, like at least saw their church family like three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever. And now barely one time a week. And if you add to this, so, so Americans, our society is kind of becoming more private. We're pulling away from kind of communal experiences and add to this the rise of social media where you can be totally alone and yet think you're experiencing community, right? Online, you think you're experiencing community. You can have a thousand Facebook friends, but still be completely alone. Or you can be with flesh and blood people and yet be distracted and pulled away by your virtual online world. The fact of the matter is our society, we are, in our society, we are becoming more and more relationally isolated and alone. We're also more transient. We're moving around, right? We're moving around from city to city, chasing jobs. And so we have to start over in community all the time. And what, what's going on right here? Peter's talking to the whole church, and I want you to see this. Suffering is intensified when you are alone or you feel alone. Right? Suffering becomes almost unbearable when you're lonely. And Peter says this. The first step in being able to turn suffering into blessing 
I'm going to just put it in our own terms, is to be living inside of a gospel-centered missional community. It's the first step. If, when, if you want to be able to take in suffering and respond in blessing and receive a blessing from God, first step is being saturated in a gospel-centered missional community. See, our culture says the church is a loosely connected group of individuals. But the Bible says the church is a family of missionary servants learning to submit all of their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's way more than just Sunday morning attendance. And look at the traits Peter says here. He wants to see this in the church. Verse 8, he says this, have unity of mind. Now, Peter's already told them what to do with their minds. In one thirteen. he said, prepare your minds for action. So he wants the church to have a ready mind, to be ready for action, right? To be ready to serve, ready to obey God, ready to lay their life down if, if it's asked of them. In 2.19, he tells them, be mindful of God, right? Be thinking and meditating on, on God, on his word, on the gospel. And this is what Peter's talking about. This will give you a unity of mind with your church family, right? We'll be on mission together, thinking kind of the same thoughts. Now listen, unity is not uniformity. It's not, this is not some kind of brainwashing that everybody thinks the same things. Unity is not uniformity. We have a unity in diversity. We get that from the Trinity. Our God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three unique persons in one God. So he's united in one and he's diverse in three persons. And the same thing goes for the church. We're to be united in mind, be focused on the gospel, be centered on the gospel and moving forward. Secondly, he says, you're to have sympathy. The church is to be a place of sympathetic unity. It's an emotional understanding. Listen, it's an emotional understanding of your brother and sister in Christ. We should be thinking, guys, when we see things on the news, how is my brother and sister in Christ going to feel about that? Right? Somebody from my brother and sister in Christ who's a different race or a different socioeconomic background, how are they going to be responding by the news that I'm seeing? And we should be sympathetic towards them. Third, the, the next two kind of come out of that sympathy. He says to have a brotherly love. We love each other like siblings. This is where we get the family nature. Church isn't a loose connect, collection of individuals. It's a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a tender heart, right? I have so many friends that just outright tell me that they've hardened their heart. They're so, they're, they've been so hurt by the kind of hookup culture uh, in our society, they're, they're so afraid of commitment, they want to keep their options open, and they've hardened their heart to people. They're almost unlovable anymore. And, and Peter says, no, 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 that's not a Christian. A Christian keeps his heart tender, keeps the heart open towards God and open towards others. And lastly, he says, we're to have a humble mind. Now, a humble mind I don't, it's a good translation, but I don't like the translation necessarily because the way we hear that, Peter, we already know, we should know if we've been around here for a while. Peter is not saying, don't think too much, right? Peter's not saying, um, don't be firm in your convictions, right? Peter's not saying uh, anything about, you know, using logic or, 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 you know, not thinking well. Peter's saying that we should be, have a humility in the way that we see ourselves. The way that we think about ourselves, we have a modest view of ourselves. We're not puffed up. What does this mean here? 
again, our identity informs this. It says, we should have an understanding of who we are in Christ that has changed the way we see ourselves. You grew up and you learned to identify yourself with either your athletic accomplishments, your academic accomplishments, your, the way that you dress, the, who you hang around with, what lunch table you ate at. We kind of learn to identify who we are by all of these things, the career we got, the the degree we got, uh, the neighborhood we live in. And Peter's blowing all of those things up. And he's saying, no, no, you got to learn to identify yourself as chosen in Christ, as a sinner who's been saved by grace. He says, you're humble because you know that you're a sinner who's worse than you think you are deep down in your heart, in your mind. But you aren't down on yourself. You're not depressed because you also know how loved you are simultaneously that Jesus went to the cross to pay your debt and he set you free with his very blood. And, and, and that, when you hold those two things together, that I'm, I'm a sinner who's worse than I thought, but I'm also a saint who's more loved than I could ever imagine. When you hold those two things together, it creates a deep humility in our heart. And listen, I'm going to tell you, this is what we're trying to do at Sacred City, right? What is a missional community trying to do? This passage is kind of speaking to us. What, what is our, our mission? What is our vision at Sacred City? This passage kind of shows us. We want this to be the culture of Sacred City in every missional community, right? This unity of mind, this sympathetic sympathy, this brotherly love, this tenderheartedness, this humility of mind. And how are we going to do it? This is a direct result of being centered and staying focused on the gospel of Jesus. See, only the gospel of Jesus can create this type of culture. And it's of vital importance because ultimately our life on mission in the world is extremely difficult and we all need a community of grace that we can be ministered to, Right? Um, Rod Dreher, he's, he's a Christian who's a columnist for the New York Times. He's got a new book out called The Benedict Option. And this is what he says. He, he's speaking about the rapid rate of change. Our culture uh, is it, we're changing and we're kind of being more antagonistic towards the Christian gospel and Christian morality and Christian view of, of the world. And he says this, quote, rather than wasting energy and resources fighting unwinnable political battles, we should instead work on building communities, institutions, and networks of resistance that can outwit, outlast, and eventually overcome the occupation, just like the church did in the first centuries of Christianity in the Roman Empire. So what Rod Dreher is saying is in order for us as a church to, and as Christians, to withstand cultural opposition and the kind of the deformation that is happening on a daily basis by just being immersed in our culture, we have to be immersed in a real biblical, authentic, alternative community. We call that here at Sacred City missional community, right? It's kind of like when the army when the army goes overseas and they, they, they build a base and this base becomes this kind of motive. It's, I mean, they have like in their base, it's like a little America, right? They have McDonald's 
on their little base and they go out and they do their battles and they come back and they regroup, right? That's the way a missional community should feel. That's the way your church should feel is as you're serving and as you're ministering and as you're following Jesus in your day-to-day life, it's going to get difficult. You're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience letdown. You're going to be mistreated. There's some things are going to happen. And it's important for us if we're going to last, if we're going to Uh, be Christian and stay Christian for the long haul, for our whole life. We've got to be immersed inside a missional community. It's formative for us. It's protective for us. Now, the sad reality is when I came to faith, I was about 18 years old. I came to faith kind of in a group of five or six guys. We all came to faith at the same time and we were passionate about Jesus. We're on fire for Jesus. And we all felt called into the ministry almost immediately. And we, we got different offers. We thought, I'm going to go to Bible college here. I might go, you know, these guys got offers at big churches to go be pastors and, and such. And I was, was going along with them. And, and I felt in the moment, I said, the Lord said to me, no, no, you need to stick it out here. And for me, that felt like death, right? I grew up in the Quad Cities. And I was like, and I, did, I grew up in, El- let me just say, I grew up, not really. I grew up in Parkview, Okay. I'm kind of out of the Quad Cities. Let's just say that. Right? Grew up in Parkview, Eldridge, went to North Scott. And I kind of wanted to go to a big city and I wanted to go to a big church and I wanted to do something cool. And when God said, no, you need to stick it out here, it felt like a death to me. Stick it out, stay in this community. And as I look at my friends, all of my friends except for one have left the ministry. They've blew up their marriages. They've ruined their life. They've traced chase the cool from big city to big city to big city. And they're not in a missional community. They are not embraced in any type of community. And their faith is, has been shipwrecked, absolutely shipwrecked. Why? Because to be a Christian, to sustain our Christian, our distinctiveness as Christians, we have to be immersed in a real authentic gospel centered community. We have to, we, we need it. It's vital for us. Now, Look at verse 9. Now, why do we need it? I think we need it because we need to be reminded of verse 9 right here. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. So I, I want to say, first off, they're, they're, these people are receiving, they're being made fun of, they're being mocked, they're being marginalized, they're being reviled, that's the word he's using, they're being cursed and slandered, they're suffering, and he says right here, for to this you were called. God has called you to go through suffering, and then he says this, here's how you respond to said suffering. When they revile you, you bless them. Mm. I don't know if there's anything more un-American than that. Right? When somebody slanders my reputation, I'm to bless in response. Now, I'm, listen, everybody might say this, the world religions and moralistic therapeutic deism might say, yeah, you know what? We should be nice to another. So when somebody slanders you, just bless them in return. They might say it, but nobody does it. 
Nobody can do it. They don't have the power to do it. If my identity is in my reputation, when you slander my reputation, I have to attack you because you're attacking my identity. Right? This is why when we tie our identities to our political party, when somebody's attacking our candidate, we take it personally and we respond like you're attacking me. Because it's my identity. I've placed my identity in my political party. This is what identity politics is all about. And Peter here says, the Christian who's been born again, when he's reviled, when he's slandered, he blesses in response. For to this you were called, look, that you may obtain a blessing. So there it is. He's showing us when reviled, if we bless, we'll receive some kind of blessing. Now, I think this is the real test. Where the, we could say the, the rubber meets the road. Are we moralistic, therapeutic deists? Or are we Christians? The moral, moralistic, therapeutic deists, if we're slandered, we, we can't handle it. We have to respond in, right? We're going to flame them, right? We're going to burn them. We're going to put a nasty comment on somebody's post. We're going we're to gossip about them behind their back. But the Christian has the ability to take it in and this, it not crush them. And they can respond in blessing. See, this is why I use that kind of term. Like, it kind of came to mind this week, this gospel alchemy. The power to take in suffering and turn it into blessing. This is what happens in our heart when the Holy Spirit, God himself, moves on the inside of us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit moves inside of us and changes us on the inside so we're able to do this. We have the power to do this. See, most of us have grew up with this American Christianity. We think that once we get to this certain point in the organizational chart, we'll be happy. And then once people see how great our life is going, then they're going to want to come to Christ and want to come to faith in Jesus. What Peter's saying is here is sometimes we're called to suffer, to take in unjust suffering, to respond in blessing. And this, this unnatural response is going to cause people to say, what? Is going on in that person's life? Where is their hope coming from? Not in their job. It's not in their reputation. It's not in their money. It's not in their promotion. It's not in their kids. How can they stay stable? How can they stay stable and respond like that? Let's keep going. What does this blessing look like? I love Peter because Peter is so saturated in uh, the liturgical prayer book of the Bible, which is the book of Psalms, that when he's, when he's writing and he's teaching, the Psalms just kind of flow out of him. And here he's going to quote Psalm 34, 12 through 16. He says this, whoever desires to love life and to see good days. Is that us? I think that's us, right? We want to love life and we want to see good days. Let him keep his or her tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. So he's building this principle off of something he's already learned in the Old Testament. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now here's the blessing. Here's part of, this is what the blessing looks like. When you're going through suffering and you're responding in blessing, this is what the blessing from God looks like. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now, for those of you who are like, well, I ain't righteous. We sang about it this morning. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're given by faith, we're given the righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit brings it to us. We're given the righteousness of Christ. It's now Jesus standing in our place and we're deemed righteous. So every Christian who has their faith in Christ, you're righteous. In the eyes of God, you've been made righteous, okay? And so when he says, speaks to the righteous, he's speaking to you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now, here's the problem. Most of us hear that. The eyes of the Lord are on you. And if you had a God-fearing mom, um, that probably is not a comfort to you, right? God is watching, right? Sure, go on. Go out, have fun with your friends. God's watching, right? Like that, (laughs) right? That that wasn't like, oh, God's watching. You know, it was more like, he's going to get me, right? If I mess up, if I screw up, he's going to get me. Right? So most of us, when we hear that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, we hear it as a negative. But listen, I, I, as a father of four little kids, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say the number one thing that I hear from my kids is, Dad, watch! Right? Dad, watch! Dad, watch! Now it's usually, as soon as I put my head in a book, or look at my phone, or doing anything else, right? Dad, watch! Dad, watch! Now why? They want to see the pleasure on my face when they do something good or new. It might be something they've drawn. It might be something they've stacked up. Uh, Piper came in today with her hair everywhere. She said, look, Dad, I did my hair. Isn't it beautiful? (laughs) You might want to talk to mom about that, right? They want to see the pleasure on my face. Now, it's also true that when they're about to do something scary or something for the first time, they're on the swings, they're on the slide, they're, they're, you know, whatever, they're about to go sledding. What do they say? Dad, watch, dad, watch. Why? They want to see the pleasure on my face when they do something new and good. And they also want to know that I'm aware that if something goes bad, I can save them, right? And when we hear that the, the eyes of the Lord, that the God who created all things are on the righteous, that means his protective gaze is upon us. His pleasure is upon us. That when we do anything good, right? When we do anything good, he smiles, right? When we respond in blessing, he smiles. It brings pleasure to him, right? When we're persecuted when we're suffering he is his eyes are on us and then secondly it says right after that his ears are open to their prayers right when we are suffering we want to know is god watching and does god hear and peter says yes absolutely now we might not experience that. We might not feel that. We might feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. But he tells us, and he reminds us, and David prays those same prayers in, in the Psalms. Sometimes his soul was in agony and he didn't know if God was hearing, but he, he knows in his knower, in his heart, right, in his soul, that God's eyes are open to him and his ears are open. So what is, as I close now, what is the blessing? What is this blessing? You know, this blessing that we receive. It's God's attention. It's God's care. But I I just wanted to kind of number it out here that I see. 
when, when, when we receive suffering and respond spiritually by blessing, there's a blessing that we receive from God. And I think it's at least five things. One, we know that it pleases God because it's an imitation of Jesus, right? Jesus is the perfect example of this on the cross where he's being, he's nailed to the cross and he's being crucified and mocked. They're saying, if you're God, come down from the cross, right? Physician, heal yourself, come off the cross. And Jesus says, God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so when we can respond that way, it's an imitation of Jesus. And of course that brings pleasure to the Father. Secondly, and we're going to see this later on in chapter 5, verses 10. Um, God promises to give us grace to withstand the suffering. In 510, he says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's part of the blessing. That knowing that the suffering that's coming in has a redemptive purpose and God will use it and eventually he'll restore me, he'll heal me, he'll establish me, he'll strengthen me. Third, the, it reminds us that our eternal reward is in heaven and it's not here on this earth. Our hope is not in our riches. Our hope is not in our reputation. Our hope is not in any created thing. Our hope has to be in Christ and our eternal inheritance is waiting in heaven for us. Jesus suffered, but then he was raised to the, from the dead, never to die again, and we will too if we keep the faith. Fourth, when we suffer for doing good and we respond with blessing, it can encourage us. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Because we know that in our flesh, without the Holy Spirit, we could have never done that. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where uh, in your flesh, right, you want to slap somebody, right? In your flesh, you want to respond. In your flesh, you got the perfect comeback. Like, it would crush everybody. That's how I think. I'm like, ooh, like you see the chink in the armor, and you're like, I'm going to get him right now, right? And you're like, and you swallow it, and later on, you think about it, you're like, how did I do that? That's the Holy Spirit in me restraining my tongue. Right? I've never been able to restrain my tongue. Right? That's the Holy Spirit at work in me. God has saved me. God is changing me. God is doing work in me. And I don't see it on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis. But if I look back over it, right? The best is when I, if I ever meet one of my grade school teachers, right? And they're like, a preacher? Like, my grade school teachers, I, I, I'm not that old. I'm, old. I'm getting there. I'm 38. But I had grade school teachers. The only way to put me in check, I had my third grade teacher, a fourth grade teacher, I can't remember. He grabbed me by the neck and put me up by the locker. Boom. Right? I told my mom. My mom's like, you probably needed it. <laughs> I love that teacher from then on. He put me in check, right? In that moment. But this is, so when we respond in a way that's not natural for us, 
We can have a greater, we can have an awareness that God is at work in us. God is doing something new. And your missional community, I hope they can see this in you. And they say, this is one of the reasons we talk about evidences of grace, every missional community. And say, you know what? A year ago, you would not have responded that way to that suffering that's coming in your life. I can tell the spirits at work in you. That's another reason we need community. Lastly, Peter shows us here specifically, taking in suffering, responding in blessing, might give us an opportunity to share our faith, to share the reason the hope for the hope that is in us, namely Jesus. Let's keep reading there. He says this, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Well, we know this. There's a lot of people out there that can harm us for doing good. Peter's already addressed it, and Peter's about to address it again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so sometimes you're going to suffer for doing the right thing. He says this, you'll be blessed. This is, this, is my, this is what I'm speaking to us this morning. Have no fear of them. Guys, the reality is somebody could come in here with a machine gun. They could. The reality is your boss can fire you for wrong reasons. Your friends could turn on you because of your faith. Your professor could fail you because you stand up for your faith. And what Peter says is, have no fear of them. Well, how, how can I do that? Nor be troubled, look at verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So, listen, suffering's coming, okay? If I want to prepare us for it. One, you need to be in a missional community to withstand this type of suffering, to see God at work in you, to be in a community where this stuff is going on. But you also, right, like, what's going to cause us? So we have this, this ideal right now that we want maximum freedom. We don't want to be tied down to any group of people. We want to be able to move around and be free. But we crave unity. We crave community. And so many people, they tell me, I want to be in commissional community. I want to have that type of community, but they can't make a commitment. They just can't give up the, all the other tertiary things that want, they want to be a part of. And, and, and they, I just can't do it. And I, I, I would say for us this morning, how, how are you going to do that? How are you going to, to step into a community that causes you to put aside some of your desire to be private, some of your desire to be free? What's going to enable you to really live like this? To be able to bless when you're hurt. I think verse 15 shows us. We just read it. It says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, here's the illustration that came to mind. You got a video game system. Whatever you put in that video game, Right? You got a game, you put that, right? I grew up on Nintendo. You put that thing in there. 
right? Whatever game you put in that system, that's, that's what plays, right? Our, our, our human beings are not much different. We have a spot. The Bible calls it our heart. Whatever is put in our heart, whatever is there in our heart, that's what we live. That's, that, that's what changes the way we live, okay? The Bible calls it like this. You are what you worship or you become like what you worship. If money is the thing in your heart, if money is your chief desire, you'll be shaped in the image that money shapes you into, right? More than likely, right? If sexual desire, if your family, if whatever it is, you'll be shaped in it. But here's the reality that Peter's saying. If Jesus is what your heart honors, it's, if it's in the spot, you'll be shaped in the image of Jesus. And how did Jesus live his life? Jesus lived inside of a missional community, his disciples. And Jesus responded in, with blessing to the suffering that came into his life. And so listen, you're programmed to respond that way when Jesus is the centerpiece of your heart. That video game system is programmed, whatever you put in there, that's what's going to play. Human beings are programmed to become like what they worship. So the answer for us this morning is to worship Jesus, to see his sacrifice on our behalf and let it melt us and let it come into our heart and reorient our desires, reorient our affections and ultimately reorient our life. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And when we, as we come this morning to the Lord's table, we're receiving the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We're being reminded once again of the blessing that we receive through Jesus' suffering. Listen, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you this morning, don't take the elements, don't take the bread, don't take the cup, take Jesus by faith. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I ask you to come inside of me and change me like this. I reject that moralistic, therapeutic deism, and I want to be a Christ follower. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for just the way that you work, the way that you move, the way that you've changed us, the way that you orchestrate and build your church. Father, I pray that we could be this missional community, this church of authentic believers who sympathize with one another, who have unity of mind, of tender hearts, who are on mission and want to see others come to faith in Jesus. I pray this morning that those who are downtrodden, those who are burdened, those who are alone, those who are suffering, that they would feel your favor, your blessing, you would know that your eyes are on them, your ears are open to their prayers, and you would bring comfort to their heart. And Father, I pray that they'd step into a missional community where they can live life like this with other believers. This is your plan. We thank you for it. Father, I ask that you would minister to us now as we come and we receive the body. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And you said, this is this cup. This is my blood that was shed for you. 
And so we come and we eat and we drink in obedience to you and we're reminded that we're one in Christ, that you're for us, that you love us. We thank you for these elements. We thank you for this, Jesus. Amen.